The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. They have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. I have watched through the years something that is inexplicable inexplicable to me. I'm confused by it. I don't understand it. It seems strange to me. 
I've had precious people that I have loved and I have known. They have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. They have confessed their sin. They have been utterly honest. And then suddenly, after a period of time, with apparently no outward reason, they suddenly dramatically change direction. They renounce what they loved before. They turn and they go back to their vomit. They walk away from Jesus. They don't necessarily leave their religion. They may maintain a profession that they are saved and that they are trusting in the Lord. They may maintain a profession that they are Christians, but their behavior demonstrates that they have turned their back utterly upon Jesus and they have jumped head on, full feet, into their own wickedness, their pride, their arrogance, their sexual immorality. This has been a source of great heartbreak for me. I have watched as some people have come to the National Prayer Chapel, and they have made great professions of faith, seemingly under great conviction. But suddenly their pride seems to overtake them. Their desire to be important, their desire to be recognized, or just the lust of their flesh, the pride of life, and they're gone. They disappear into the ether. They are, they are simply gone. I have whole families that have done this. Husband, wife, children. And as I have carefully checked with others and with them later, discovered that they have, in fact, renounced the way of holiness and no longer walk in that intimacy with Jesus. They're filled with their own thoughts and their own plans. They're filled with their own hungers and their own desires. But for the kingdom of God, they have disappeared. Now, once more today, the question is truly, what must I do to be saved? And this matter of your salvation lies between yourself and God alone. Philippians 2.12 says that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. But if you suddenly decide to veer off the track, out of bitterness, out of jealousy, out of the lust of your flesh, you decide to go on your own and leave behind your commitments and your profession of faith, you will in the end be far worse off than you were at the beginning when you first came to make those professions of faith. There is no more serious issue than this issue of your salvation. And it requires an intense self-examination in the light of Jesus Christ as we allow the Holy Spirit to search us to determine what is the, what is the cause of our life. What is the motivation of our heart? I've seen a person be washed and made clean and then turn suddenly, inexplicably, 
turn. Dive back into their uncleanness, seeking their unclean lovers. And disappear. This is so fresh on my heart because this morning the Lord was bringing many of these dear ones to my heart in the prayer closet. And I was crying out for them by name. Asking the Lord, is there any possibility you can turn their hearts? They have gone down the rabbit hole of insanity, moral insanity, seeking their unclean lovers. I've said, Lord, is it possible to turn these dear ones' hearts and to save them? I love the Lord. I love his mercy and his justice. But he will not abide a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who turns from the testimony of Jesus' love and righteousness and holiness and dives back into their wickedness. It is though they are now twice dead. I want to share with you again today some thoughts from the book God's Call by Charles Finney. He's speaking about the conditions of being saved. And then I want to go to a story in the scripture. We'll see how far we get. Luke fourteen thirty three says, You must forsake all, you must forsake all that you have, or you cannot be Christ's disciple. In other words, there must be a total, absolute, complete self-denial. And again, when Jesus was speaking in Matthew 16, if you would follow Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And the word deny in the Greek means to disown you must disown yourself. Now, by this, we do not mean that you're never to eat again or never again to clothe yourself or never to enjoy the society of your friends, your family. Rather, we mean that you should cease entirely from using any of these enjoyments selfishly. You must no longer think that you own yourself, your time, your passions, your possessions, or anything you have ever called your own. All these things you must now think of as God's, not yours. In this sense, you are to forsake all that you have in the sense of laying everything on God's altar to be devoted supremely and only to his service. When you come to God for pardon and salvation, you come and lay everything you have at his feet. You come with your body to offer it as a living sacrifice upon his altar. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. You come with your soul and all of its powers. You yield them in willing consecration to your God and Savior. You come bringing everything, body, soul, intellect, imagination, skills, everything. You, you withhold nothing. You say, must I really bring everything? Yes. You must bring absolutely everything. Do not keep back anything. Don't sin against your own soul like Ananias and Sapphira by wanting and desiring to keep back a part for yourself. Rather, renounce your own claim to everything and recognize God's right to everything 
say, Lord, these things are not mine. I had stolen them from you, but they are not mine. They were always yours. I'll have them no longer. Lord, these things are all yours henceforth and forever. Now, what do you want me to do? I have no business of my own to do. I am wholly at your disposal. Lord, what work do you have for me to do? Now, in this spirit, you must renounce the world, the flesh, and Satan. Your fellowship is henceforth to be with Christ and not with these objects. You are to live for Christ and not for the world, the flesh, or the devil. Now, let's come back to this fundamental issue that we began dealing with yesterday. And that is that the scriptures indicate that all of the world belongs to God. He is the creator. He created you. He gave you life. He created everything upon the earth, and the devil has come and twisted and perverted almost everything you see and hear. This is most obvious in the professional sports world, in the entertainment world, in the media. It's now even evident in the science. It is evident on every hand that Satan has come and he has twisted and turned and destroyed as best he can all that Jesus has made. We come now and we confess before Jesus that we have stolen ourselves from him. We have stolen our time. We have stolen relationships. We have stolen our pride. Everything that the man possesses that he claims as his own, he stole. We are thieves and liars. Becoming a Christian means that I choose to to recognize Jesus as the Lord. I choose to come confessing before Jesus that I am a thief and a liar. I come recognizing I have stolen myself. Now, I recognize that many today want to claim themselves and their talents They want to claim their possessions and they want to give to Jesus only that which they would choose to give to Jesus. They want to pick and choose. You cannot do that when you come to Jesus. He will not accept you. You cannot come and feign religion and pretend that something that you have done or something that you have or hold will somehow buy you your salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Righteousness is a free gift. It is not something that we negotiate with God. There's a story in the scriptures that I love. It's the story of two prodigal sons. A man had two sons. They'd grown up and become adults. And one of the sons was utterly rebellious. He was constantly chafing at working on the farm. He wanted to go and live in the city. He wanted a lifestyle that was loose and free. And so he demanded of his father his share of the estate. Now, during this time, there was a law 
that allowed a son to declare that the father had mistreated him and was cheating him, and he could legally demand of the father his share of the estate. Now, the problem is, if the father contested his son and the court determined that the father had been faultless, the son would then be fined a very large amount of money and would then be excluded from all rights to any part of the father's estate. Now, knowing that in the culture, the culture of that day, the father could have contested this son and he was doubtless without fault in his treatment but he chose not to contest and instead he divided the estate now there's another rule that affected this if a son demanded his share of the estate when that share of the estate is granted to him he would have no further right to any money the father would make after that point. And so this son is cutting himself off from all of his father's benefits to come in the future. He is, in effect, disowning his father. He is grabbing his share of the estate. The father is not contesting it in the court of law. He divides his property between his two sons. Now, it wasn't long after this that the younger son got together all that he had, all of his share of the estate, and he set off for a distant country. And there Jesus in his parable tells us that this this son squandered his wealth in wild living. He was charged by his elder brother with party time, prostitutes, every ungodly thing. Now, living in the city is quite different than living at home on the estate with a family. And the half of the estate did not last very long. He spent it on expensive clothing, expensive women, expensive housing, party time, feasting with his new friends. And we're told that he spent everything that he had. And then came a severe famine. Let me try to say this in a way you can hear me and understand. Living in the far country with all of the din and the noise of the world filling your heart and filling your ears, you cannot hear God speak to you. And so the Lord took the children of Israel out into the desert and out of the presence of the Egyptians and their culture. He took them out of their slavery so that they would be able to hear him in the desert. And there in the desert, he caused them to be hungry. He caused them to want. He caused them to lack water and provision. He did this, the scriptures say, in order to humble them. And then he gave them manna, food from heaven. But they had to get down on their knees to collect the food. He did not have the food appear on golden tables with china and silver. He could have, but that's not God's way. He humbled their hearts. He made them hungry, and then he fed them, and they could only collect the food by getting on their knees and picking it up in the early hours of the morning off of the ground. It is in the severe famine that God can finally begin to get the attention of a person. 
But even in the midst of that severe famine, a person may take actions that will destroy them. They can rebel. They can curse. They can grumble. And as you recall, all of the adult men who went out into that desert who will who were humbled in this way and who were fed manna, finally, because they would not believe the word of God and they would not humble their hearts before God, they finally died in the desert. And so a desert experience and famine and want are not an absolute condition under which a man or woman will turn to God. God led me to the desert. He began sending me to the desert long before I turned in repentance to him. And he caused my heart to be desperate and hungry and needy. And in that place, I cried out to God for a year. And God finally answered my prayer. And he brought a partner to walk with me in the desert. He brought a wife to me to be a part with me in the desert. Now that wife was precious to my heart. And together we walked through that desert time. And then God established the National Prayer Chapel And then he took Jan home. He had first right on her life because we professed and believed and acted upon the simple proposition that Jan belonged first to Jesus and secondly to me as a wife. I now walk that way in every relationship and in every situation. Jesus stands between me and the National Prayer Chapel. It belongs to him. He stands between me and those that are precious to me. They all belong to him. I no longer claim anything as my own. It all belongs to Jesus. I know that his presence is with me. And I pray that as I speak this word to your heart today, great conviction will come upon your heart. The scriptures say he began to be in need. It was a desperate need. He was starving to death. So he found his own solution to this problem. He hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs the pods from off of the trees. This was the lowest kind of work that a Jewish man could do. It was entirely degrading and unacceptable. Pigs were the filthiest beast on the earth to their way of thinking. He longs to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs are eating, but no one gave him anything. In other words, he had not worked long enough to begin to get any pay. And as the pay would maybe come once a month or maybe every six weeks or maybe once every six months, I don't know what the arrangement was. But whatever it was, this man who had squandered everything he had was now in such a desperate place that his life was about to be taken. He was starving to death. He was trying to eat the food of pigs. And the scriptures say in Luke, the 15th chapter, verse 17, when he came to his senses, or... Literally, when he came to himself, 
when he awakened from his insanity. It takes sometimes great need to come to our senses. Some of you are able to have a job. You can cover your basic expenses. You can cover your your basic needs. And so you'll not come to your senses. You have stolen yourself from God. You have enough religion to make you feel like you're secure. But you still own yourself. You still own your thoughts and your desires. You go here or there based on what you would like. You're a thief. You have to come to your senses. I wrote to one person and I said, this is what you have done. And I enumerated one, two, three, four. This is what you've done. And then in pleading with them, I said, how far down the rabbit hole do you have to go? Or in other words, how insane do you have to become before you will turn your heart? When will you come to your senses and understand that you have never been loved like God loves you? When will you when will you stop? He came to his senses. And he said to himself, what am I doing? Literally, I've stolen myself from my father. I've stolen the estate from my father. He could have contested, and he could have had me cast out of the family. He didn't have to give me all of this. I stole it from him. I have stolen myself. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of my father. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Or literally, I have sinned against God. And I have sinned before you. My sin is very public. There was nothing hidden in my sin. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He's finally coming to his senses. And he's recognizing that he has stolen from his father. That he's stolen the estate and he squandered it. There's nothing he can do to repay his father. He has nothing to repay with. He can't go collect the money he's wasted. It's gone. That's where some of you are today. You've squandered your life, your energy. You've squandered your skills and your abilities. You've squandered the love of your heart. You can't pay it back. You can't pay back to those you've broken your relationship with. What do you have? You have nothing. We have to come out of the delusion of this world and recognize that there is only one key issue. It's not whether you have a job. It's not whether you have a wife or a husband. It's not whether you have a house or a car. There really is only one key issue. And that is, are you willing to stop stealing yourself from God? Are you willing to humble your heart and say, I have sinned against you? 
I'm not worthy to be with you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Most people will not do this because of the pride of life and they will be lost. I have stood in front of the congregation and I have pleaded for people to acknowledge their sin and come and humble their hearts before God and they sit like a bump on the log refusing to humble their hearts refusing to admit their guilt professing their innocence professing their religion I've begged you call let's pray together is there conviction in your heart and the phone lines have remained empty and dead do you understand that for you to continue doing what is doubtful is to allow yourself to tamper with divine authority And as you continue to claim yourself and to walk in ways that are doubtful before God, your mind is seared and you are no longer able to see your true condition before God. The solemn fear of sinning is a thing of the past. You have not cherished you have not cherished the conviction that God sent to your heart. You have instead cast it off with excuses and declarations of your innocence. If you do this, how can you be saved? You cannot be saved protesting your innocence and protesting your religion and saying, I'm saved, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved. How can that be true? How can you be saved from your sin and still be a sinner? You're not saved from it if you're still sinning. And yet you've calloused your heart. You've hardened your heart by engaging in all kinds of worldly activities and and engaging in all of the entertainment of the world How can you be saved? (laughs) My brother, my sister, have you seared your heart so that you don't even recognize the desperately dangerous place you're in before a holy and righteous God who will not allow you into heaven as you continue to walk in rebellion against him, as you continue to steal yourself from him? Do you recognize You cannot own yourself and be owned by Jesus Christ in a way that is going to save your soul. You are owned by Jesus, but if you do not acknowledge that ownership, if you do not humble your hearts before a holy God, how can you be saved? phone number in studio is 877-534-0780. I'm here to pray for you and to with and to pray with you. Religion will not save you. Professions of faith will not save you. Professions of love for Jesus while you are a thief and a scoundrel will not save you. You must come to your senses. You must see what you have done and what you are doing. You must come to your senses and recognize that you must humble your heart before God, that you have nothing to bring to Him to cause Him to have mercy upon you. But in His great love... He will have mercy. In his great love, he will forgive you. 
but you must come to him. In this story of the prodigal sons, the father does not go to the far city to search for his son. He stays at home and runs the farm. He does not go searching for his son. Because he knows that if he finds his son, the son will simply demand more money and will make excuses and will spurn his father's love. No, he must first come to his senses. He must see the desperate situation he is in, and then he will, perchance, humble his heart. Have you humbled your heart before a mighty and awesome God? Have you acknowledged that you have stolen your heart from God? Have you acknowledged that you have stolen your money, your time, your energy, your gifts? Have you acknowledged what you have stolen from God because he owns it all? And if you're living in that pretend world where you think you own your own life and you can choose what you will do, and you remain a thief and a liar. You will be lost. And the gate of mercy and the gate of righteousness will close upon you. And you will be left out of the kingdom of heaven. So I humble my heart sufficiently to beg you to beg you, my brother and my sister, that you acknowledge before a holy God, as I have done, that I own nothing. And that if it were not for God's grace, I would be utterly lost and condemned to an eternal hell. Will you acknowledge that you have stolen yourself from God? And will you give up your pride and your arrogance before him? The number in studio is 877-534-0780. We have time for one call. Have you continued in your sin? and spurned the grace of God, claiming ownership over your life, perhaps even being very religious. What are you going to do? I have carefully laid out for you The proposition, if you believe the record God has given of his Son in the Scriptures, he who does not believe does not receive who Jesus truly is. Suppose a poor man is living next door to you, and he receives a letter stating that a rich man has died in England and left you a hundred thousand pounds. A local bank informs him that he has received the amount on deposit and the bank is waiting for his instructions. And the poor man says, I can't believe this letter. I can't believe there was ever any such rich man. I can't believe there's a hundred thousand pounds for me. So he lives and dies a poor man because he won't believe the testimony. This is the case with the unbelieving sinner who has stolen himself away from God. You have the proposition and you have the testimony this pastor has borne you from the scriptures. And now what will you do? But you say, I, 
I must have some feeling before I can believe. How can I believe until I have the feeling that it's true? Or the rich, the poor man might say, How can I believe that the hundred thousand pounds is mine? I don't have a penny of it now. I'm as poor as ever. You are as poor as ever. Living, feasting on the pods of the pigs until you come to your senses. You don't need an inward experience of feeling something. You simply have to believe the word of God and understand that it's true and you must return the stolen goods. Do you understand? If you want to be saved, you must accept a prepared salvation, one already present, prepared, and ready. You must be willing to give up all of your sins and be saved from them now and forever. Until you agree to this, you cannot be saved at all. Now, many people would be willing to be saved in heaven if they could hold on to some sins while on earth, or rather they think that they would like heaven on such terms. But the fact is they would dislike a pure heart and a holy life in heaven as much as they do on earth, and they utterly deceive themselves in supposing that they are ready or ever willing to go to the heaven that God has prepared for his people. a very famous comic, Sammy Davis Jr. Shortly before he passed away, I listened to him do a brief piece in an interview on on the television. And the interviewer asked him, do you believe that when you die, you're going to go to a better place, Sammy? Sammy cracked a joke, and then he said, of course I believe that. Everybody's going to go to a better place when we die. How sad. Davis Jr., a a wicked man, not a follower of Jesus Christ, making his own money in his own way in a wicked world, entertaining wicked people, He believes that when he dies, he's going to a better place. He might be quite shocked today to discover he is in a holding cell waiting for the final judgment and then to be pronounced the execution, the final execution. There can be no heaven except for those who accept a salvation from all sin in this world now. You must take the gospel as a system that holds no compromise with sin, a system that intends full deliverance from all sin now and makes provision accordingly. Any other gospel is not the true gospel, and to accept Christ's gospel in any other sense is not to accept it at all. Its first and its last condition is sworn and eternal renunciation of all sin. So the question is, Have you returned to God what you stole from him? Or are you set on a course of going to that far country and you think you have enough money to support yourself? You think you don't need to worry? You think you're okay? Jesus loves you just like you are? you are going to be desperately disappointed. For if all sin is not renounced, if all darkness is not turned away from, you will be lost. 
There is no room for thieves or liars in the heaven above. Isn't that what Satan did that caused him to be cast out of the heavenly realm? setting himself up, saying, I would be like God. I will be me, stealing himself from God, the most beautiful of all of God's creation, probably the strongest of all God's creation. There was war in heaven, and he was cast out. You cannot enter the heaven above walking as a thief having stolen yourself from God and then come back and try to make some negotiated peace with him saying I will keep these things but you can have these I will do my spiritual and religious rituals I will go to church I will pay my tithe but I will own this part of my life You cannot negotiate with Jesus. The conditions for salvation are a full surrender of what you have stolen. It is a grounding of the sword of rebellion once and for all. It is making Jesus Christ Lord and ruler of your heart, of your mind, of your soul, of your spirit. It is relinquishing everything into his hand so that you live by what he alone will give you. You do not reach out your hand to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve reached out and stole from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the price, oh, the price we've paid for her sin. And the price we've paid for our own sin. Oh Lord, I pray for every person listening to this broadcast today. I ask that you would move in power to convict them of the true condition of their heart, that you would bring them into a desert place where they can be humbled where they can turn to you, and I pray they will not die as the children of Israel did in that desert land, but I pray you will bring them into the promised land. Lord, have your way today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find all of the information you might need about the National Prayer Chapel. I invite you to give as the Lord prompts you that this broadcast could be widespread. Write to me, Pastor Ray Greenley, at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346. Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I invite you to come and worship with us. It will be an experience of meeting the Holy Spirit. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.